And while they're doing that, by way of introduction, let me just say good morning to you once again, and thank you for being here at Christ Community Church this morning. If you're new or visiting with us, my name is Chris Henson. I'm one of the elders here, and we have been, for the last month or so, going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so this morning, we're going to pick back up there. We're going to be on page 555 on the Bible there on your row. So if you need to grab one this morning, you can. The words will also be up on the screen behind me today as well. Um, I don't make a regular habit of being on social media. Frankly, I just don't have the time to do it, and I know that I would get sucked in and go down a rabbit hole and then find myself three hours later going, what happened to the time, right? But every once in a while, people I do know who are on social media will send me things which they think may amuse me and my very weird, demented sense of humor. So this week, I had a friend send me a video on TikTok of a guy showing the proper way to eat a hamburger. Why he knew that that would somehow inspire me to laughter is why we're friends. But nevertheless, it was a video on the proper way to eat a hamburger. And so I, I kind of went down this rabbit hole, which is why I don't do this, and realized that there is a whole world out there right now on social media teaching the generation right now watching TikTok, watching Instagram Reels, everyone else, what proper etiquette is, right? What is proper etiquette? How do you mind your manners? Things that previous generations would have had an innate understanding about how to do in social situations have been lost on the up and coming generation. And so I went down this rabbit hole and there were some really interesting things on there like how do you show up at a dinner event when you're invited to go out by your boss or by corporate leadership and know how to understand all of the things that are out of place setting, right? This is a salad fork. That's a dinner fork. Here's what you do with your napkin when you get up and you leave the table. Here are things that you do and don't do with your wine glass, your water glass, you know, different things like that. Um, there are things in there like how do you dress properly for certain events, right? It's different if you're going to a casual get-together on Friday with some work friends than if you're going over to your in-law's house for the first time because, you know, you're meeting them and, and whatever else. That would be weird if you're meeting your in-laws for the first time. Um, how to go on a first date and knowing the proper conversation topics and behaviors to have. So, the most interesting video I saw this week, and I thought I would share some of these things with you since we had the first day of fall this past week, although you wouldn't know it because it was 98 degrees outside, but one of the things that he had recently posted was, what do you do? Here's five tips for going to Thanksgiving this year, right? So we're all going to do a little manners check this morning. We're going to see how up, up to, uh, to par you are on your etiquette. So his number one tip was this. Whenever you pass the salt or pepper, you always pass them together, and you never season your food without tasting it first. My wife is over there going, we say this every single night at the dinner table, don't touch the salt until you eat the food, right? Okay, so that's one. Number two, the meal begins when the host or hostess unfolds their napkin and places it in their lap. You should wait to open up your napkin or start your meal until you see the host do that. Now, if they tell you that it's okay to start eating, it's also okay to go ahead and eat your meal, but in proper etiquette, when the host puts their napkin on the table, you're done. 
You're not sitting there snacking for another five minutes, right? So that was, that was tip number two. Tip number three, dudes, this is for us, cut only one piece of food at a time and then proceed to eat it. You're not sawing that turkey up and making 50 bites and mashing it all together on your plate and then digging in with, with your fork and knife, right? Cut one, food at, one piece of food at a time, put it in your mouth and eat it. How about this? If place cards have been put on the table, don't switch them, right? I've done that before. I've been like, I don't want to sit next to them. I don't want to talk to them. I can't even make polite conversation. I want to sit next to them. They're fun. We'll be laughing the entire time. People will be like, stop talking. This is inappropriate. I'll be like, I know. I switched the cards. That's why they didn't put us next to each other in the first place. And then finally, uh, as your mama probably told you, don't talk about politics or religion or money because it's just bad manners. Well, as we come to the middle part of Ecclesiastes this morning, what we're going to see this morning is that Solomon apparently paid zero attention in Hebrew etiquette school because he is going to double down in these two chapters in the middle of Ecclesiastes, and he is going to talk exclusively about religion and money. And he's going to do it in a way that would disrupt Thanksgiving dinner, because religion and money hit close to home. That's why you don't talk about them at the Thanksgiving dinner table, because they hit close to home, and they reveal something about us, right? They reveal what we trust in. They reveal things that that matter the most to us. And if we get those things wrong, there is almost certainly loss involved. But I don't say that this morning as a, as a warning for us, as much as it's a reminder that, that in Jesus we have the answer. But as we continue to sit at the feet of the teacher Solomon here, we're going to see in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 that the allure and the appeal of shifting our hope to either of these things, religion or money, ultimately proves to be one more instance of chasing after the wind. So let's dig in to this passage together now, Ecclesiastes chapter five, starting in verse one. There he says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, Let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Let's discuss what's going on here. I think one of the things that most of us are incredibly familiar with, right, living in the Bible Belt, living in the South, is the reality of cultural Christianity. I think we're on the downward side of that slope of cultural Christianity at this point in time in our culture as our country continues to shift, right, further and further away from values that have at their root Christian virtues. But but let me be clear about a couple of those things, right? 
The reason, the reason that that's happening, or I should say, before we, before we lament that, let me be clear, cultural Christianity does not mean that the culture was previously actually seeking to honor Jesus, right? It just meant that accepted norms of behavior and conversation and relationship were more aligned with behaviors and social norms that have root in biblical values, right? But the biggest reason behind that, number two, is that because because the, the reality of trying to live religiously when you're not actually religious is no longer important, right? There was a point in time where if you wanted to have social status or you wanted to be seen appropriately in the community or if you wanted to be worthy of, of, of going out and, and getting a date, you needed to demonstrate some degree of, of moral standard or right behavior or you needed to fit into this church box. And Jesus has not lost his attractiveness. It's not become less valuable to follow Jesus, but the culture around us has said, look, if you're not religious, no one really cares. No one cares anymore. And so if, if that's not really the heart of where you're at, there's no incentive to do that anymore. And that's why it's on the downswing. And, and sadly, that even bleeds over into the church, right? Because there's no incentive in the world to act religious. People in the church as well, we, we don't necessarily act any different from the world around us. And if people observe our lives or our speech or our decisions, other than the fact that we go to church on Sunday morning, they may not even know that Jesus really is our treasure. But this concept of cultural Christianity or cultural faith isn't just an American invention of the last 100 to 200 years. As, as long as religion has been part of society, as long as religion has been part of culture, there has always been the ability or the tendency to use religion or to act religious without understanding the nature of what it means to truly worship God. What do I mean by that? Look back at verse one with me. As a Jew living in Israel, right? This is the context in which Solomon is teaching. Life and culture are wrapped around worshiping God. This isn't cultural Christianity, it's cultural Judaism. And there was a right and an expected way to go about worship if you're a Jew living in the kingdom of Israel. Now, put yourself in their shoes, go back in this time, right? If you're, you're, you're a good Bible student, you know, before Solomon had come, there's no temple in Jerusalem. David realizing that there was a rightness to worship, there was a, a right way to worship Yahweh God, sent to have the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem. It was put in a tent, but because he was a man of war, a man of bloodshed, it was not to him to build the temple. And so decades before Ecclesiastes is written, Solomon builds this magnificent temple magnificent temple to the glory of God. In 1 Kings 8, you see the glory of God come down in a thick cloud and fill the temple. And from that moment forward, day and night, people are walking up the temple mount to offer sacrifice to God and to worship God. It's a beacon, it's a building, a testament to the glory of God that the nation of Israel and all nations would come and find the one true king of heaven and earth and worship him. And so if you're a Jew living in this day, you are intimately aware of and familiar with the importance of worship. It's not to be taken lightly. There is an order to it. There's a business to it. 
And so you weren't to come carelessly to the temple. As verse one says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. The warning rings true. You're there to worship the maker of heaven and earth. You're there to worship the one who is literally holding the fabric of the universe and every cell of your body together by the power of his hand. You're there to worship the one who before you were born marked off every day of your life from start to finish. So you can recognize that. And as you approach the house of God, you can take a deep breath and you can go, okay, this isn't the grocery store. This is not hanging with my, my homeboy Yahweh, right? There's a, there's a depth of conviction and understanding about going before God in worship. Or you can do what we see in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter five. You could be a fool. And that's what he's describing here. This person, this fool in Ecclesiastes 5 is a person who's showing up and doing a religious song and dance and then going home without being affected by it because it's at least the right thing to do. And that's what we see. The fool, verse 1, goes up and offers a sacrifice of fools. He's going through the actions. I'm offering my goat. I'm offering my ram. I'm offering my, my doves because that's what I'm supposed to do. There's no heart behind it not realizing that the Lord doesn't care about the fact that you brought an animal. He wants the heart behind it. He wants your adoration and your worship, not your pious action so that you can check the box off and say that you did what you were supposed to do. They're ritualistic. The fool goes to the house of God and what does it say that, that he does with his words? Verse two, he thinks that by his many words and his fancy prayers that somehow he's gonna earn God's favor or convince other people that they're righteous. It's the same thing that we see Jesus warn against in the New Testament, right? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, what does he say? He says, when you pray, don't be like the, the Gentiles. Don't be like those who, who don't know God, who think that by their many words and empty phrases that they will somehow gain favor with God. Or like he tells later on in, in Matthew where he's talking about the Pharisees going up to the temple and, and you see this, this image, right? This contrast of these Pharisees who are standing before the Lord and saying, look at everything I do. I give a tenth of everything that I have. I'm, I, I follow the law. I'm, I'm righteous. I'm not like this tax collector over here. What is the tax collector doing? Instead of prattling on with his words, He's beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Which one of those is righteous before the Lord? One is going, assuming that by their actions and their words, that they will be seen as righteous. There's one who recognizes they're not even worthy to step closer to the presence of God because of my sin. Be merciful to me. The fool goes to the house of God, verses five and six, and they make vows. Lord, if you'll just bless me, then, 
then I'll, I'll, I'll read my Bible more. Lord, if you'll just, if you'll just give me this job, I, I promise I'll, I'll, I'll be more faithful in this. If, if you'll just get rid of this disease, if you'll get rid of this cancer, if you'll do this, if you'll do this for me, God, I'll, I'll do this thing for you. But that's not wrong, ultimately. Should we not go before the Lord and ask for him to intervene in the most difficult situations in our life? Of course we should. Vows were not inappropriate to make. But does the fool intend to keep them? It's manipulation. We see that in verses four and five and six. When it says, let not your mouth lead you into sin and don't say before the messenger that it was a mistake. They would have people come around and say, do you remember this thing you vowed at the temple? Are you gonna do it? Oh, no, 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 that was a mistake. That must not have been me. It was another dude in a, in a camel-colored tunic. There's a ton of us, right? Why should they be doubly guilty, sinning both because their hearts are far from God and also because they had no intentions to fulfill the things that they said they would do? And yet to the outside spectator or to even the fool, what does this all look like? What does this all look like? It looks really religious. He's checking all the boxes. He's doing the right thing, placing significance upon upright living and holy behaviors tricking themselves into thinking that they're earning favor with God. But what does the Bible say about that in verse seven? Where dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. It's meaningless. Religious effort, religious toil, religious prattling on and on with many words doesn't matter if you don't fear God. Doesn't matter. There's no meaning in religion if it isn't if it isn't grounded in a right understanding of who God is and who we are and a true worship of him to fear God. And when we say fear God, I'm not talking about being afraid of God and being scared and being concerned and being worried and being anxious. Fearing God is is. is understanding who he is and understanding who we are and then coming before him with a deep reverence and trust and going, okay, you are God in heaven and here am I on earth. It's like Job, when he's questioning God and God shows up at the end and says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job falls silent. Because he recognizes in that moment that God is so far beyond him that he should watch his attitude and his heart before he questions him. And can you question God? Of course you can. Of course you can. But what's the heart behind that? Is it a reverence and a fear for God? trying to question and figure out the difficult and the dirty and the hard things in life? Or is it something else? You see, we, we have to be careful, church, that we don't fall into the same trap of getting wrapped up in the increase of religion without ultimately revering the true object of worship. That's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying, watch yourself. Be careful that you don't end up 
following a pattern of religious behaviors without ever recognizing that the aim of all of those things is to know God. Not to be seen as religious. Not to feel better about yourself because you've checked the boxes. And listen, that's easy for us to do, right? It is. It's easy to go through the religious motions. It's easy to show up here thinking about the next thing that we're already gonna do. It's easy to pick up our Bible and put it in the car and come here and then go home and stick it on the shelf and pick it up the next time that we need it. It's easy to make much of Jesus when we're a group of people from church, but then go home and treat our spouses or students, your parents or your siblings. It's easy to treat your children or your coworkers, whoever, without any consideration for Christ. To come to church because it's the right thing to do or to raise your kids in a Christian home, or to save your marriage, or to set a good example. And and listen, none of that is meant to be harsh. And if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, listen, there are gonna be seasons where you're going through the motions. There are. And if that's you right now, and and you're going, man, I'm, I'm in a dark spot, and I don't feel close to the Lord, and this all feels a little bit like discipline, Like it's a discipline for me to just get up and put one foot in front of the other and try to trust Jesus along the way. That's okay. That's okay. And listen, if your marriage is in a hard spot and and you're in this building going, I don't know what we need, but I know it starts here, you're in the right place. If your parenting is falling apart and you're here because you know that this is where you need to be, you're in the right place. But listen, if the, the end goal is to siphon some religious fumes off a worship service and go home and not be any different, I promise you there's no life in that. There isn't. You're not gonna be around enough holy people to fix whatever it is that's going on. Jesus must deeply dwell within you. And if you've trusted in him, he does. And if it's hard for you to see right now, or if it's difficult for you to understand, cling fast to passages like James 4. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's not a time frame put on that. I think that's on purpose. It's not a guarantee that if I do five weeks of Bible study and I'm in a hard spot, all of a sudden Jesus is gonna show up and make all my problems go away and he's gonna feel near to me. Trust Him, draw near. Be faithful in the things that he calls us to do, but be clear. Don't be religious for religious sake because ultimately that's vanity. It's the action of fools. Fear and know God. Let everything that we do flow from that. Well, that was tough. Solomon, thanks for for crushing that dream. Appreciate it. He's been on the war path, it feels like, since the beginning of this book, saying this is meaningless, this is meaningless. You can't go off and be religious and and find meaning in that. That's not ultimately your purpose. It's just checking a box of, of external behavior. Ultimately, you have to fear God in the midst of that. But what else? If religion isn't the answer, then surely there must be something else that provides meaning under the sun. Well, why not riches? That's where he's gonna go next. 
We've discussed this before, but Solomon understood riches, right? Riches beyond comparison. I don't know anybody at this point in my life whose money just grows and grows and grows and grows, and they don't even have to ever think about it, right? It's crazy how much money this guy had. But can money buy happiness? How do you answer that question? I took to the internet because everything you read on the internet is true to find an answer to that question. I actually found a study. So there was a study done in 2010 by Princeton that evaluated people's happiness and emotional well-being at various income levels. And the study found that, yes, up to a certain point, money can make you feel happier and help you to have emotional well-being. But there is a point at which it stops and then it goes down. And it doesn't matter if you make a little bit more than that point, and it doesn't matter if you make millions of dollars beyond that point, there is a point at which money and happiness have an inverse relationship. When the researchers identified that point, you know what they found it to be? It was the point at which people, in the context in which they live, no longer lived in poverty, and had enough money to meet their basic needs. On average, that was about seventy dollars to $75,000. Of course, depending where you live, that number changes, right? After that point, it didn't move the needle. In fact, people became less happy, more stressed, more concerned. They had greater incidences of sleeplessness and need for medications to manage stress-related or health-related issues. It was, it was wild. And, and so you look at that and you go, okay, right? There's a level of, of standard of living that, that certainly helps you feel comfortable and secure. But can money and the increase of money really make you happy? You know, John Rockefeller at the peak of his time as an oil baron, was the richest man in the world, and he was asked by a reporter one time, how much money is enough? And he famously replied, just a little bit more. Because you can have it all and still realize that there's something out there on the horizon that you've yet to gain. Solomon knew that as well. So let's take a look here. You'll jump down to verse 10. We're going to see this, this answer, right? Is, are, are riches the answer? Can riches really buy happiness? Look at verses 10 and following with me. It says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for all his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all the days he eats, in darkness and much vexation, 
and sickness and anger. Now, at the outset of this, let me be clear. Money is just money, right? It's a tool, albeit it's an incredibly important tool, but it's just a tool. The issue that we see, if you look back at verse 10, is the love of money, right? The love of money. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. I'm sure you've heard the, the often misquoted Bible verse, love of money is the root of all evil. It's not the case. First Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. I should say that the misquote is money is the root of all evil. Not the case. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But even there, the point is money is an object. Money is an object. It's neither positive nor, nor negative. It just, it is. But it can easily move from something that is used to being something that's coveted, cherished, and needed, sought after, and amassed. And that's where we get in trouble. Why? Solomon lists out some reasons in verses 11 through 16. What happens when we seek to find our hope in riches? He says, verse 11, as the goods of the rich, the rich increase, so do those who eat them. What does he mean by that? More you have, the more you're gonna spend to take care of the stuff that you have. The more you have, the more you're gonna attract people who have needs you can help meet. The cycle continues. Contrast that with the laborer, verse 12. What do we see about the laborer? The laborer works diligently, earns his keep, settles down at the end of the day exhausted and tired, not worried about whether he's eaten much or eaten little, and he sleeps soundly. Contrast that with the one who has a love for riches. Won't let him sleep. Always worrying about the next deal, the next venture, the next increase, working to the bone to gain the next dollar. Read an interesting article about a guy in Houston who is a real estate mogul. He's made $40 million over the course of the last five years in real estate in the Houston market alone. You know what his motto is? Money never sleeps. I'll sleep when I'm dead. I don't know much about this guy. But at least from what I could tell, he doesn't seem like a happy man. Rich, but tired. Not only that, riches don't always provide the security that they, you think they will. What, what do we see in verse 13? There's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner. To what? To his hurt. Funds were lost in a bad deal, bad investment, and now he has no money left to take care of his family. Naked and penniless, he came into the world and so he will return. I don't know how many of you are, are, are actively investing, if you watch stock, stock market, if you're into finances, right? But if you are, you know that this year has been a really bad year for people who have invested in crypto, right? You're like, what is crypto? Just lump it in with TikTok if that's, if that's where you're at and just brush it aside, right? Just ignore it, right? Uh, but I read a story several weeks ago about a young accountant several years ago who, as an intern in college, went and got an internship, made $15,000 for his 
his internship and decided to invest all of it in crypto. As of this past year, he had turned that $15,000 into millions. Didn't touch it, just let it ride. As of June, after the crypto crash, he'd seen every single gain that he had earned almost completely erased. He had 99% of his portfolio gone. Thought about taking his own life until a friend stepped in. The quote he said was this, even though I enjoyed life, I thought I was on easy street. I don't know how I can live with my losses. This man's wealth had become his identity. I don't know how I can live with my losses. I don't know how I can live with something that three years ago I didn't have, didn't know that I needed, had zero idea that I would ever possess. I don't know how I can function. It's not worth waking up tomorrow. That's a person who's lost sight of what life is really for. It's a tragedy, but wealth had become his life and his identity. But that's what Solomon is saying here about riches. He says, look, if you think that the next raise that you get at work is gonna provide your life with meaning, you're crazy. There's never gonna hit a point if you're still working. I promise you this. I'm saying this to myself as well. There's never gonna come a point where you look at your boss and say, I, I, it's fine, I make too much. Don't worry about it. You don't need to give me a raise. I won't take any more money. Please don't. I absolutely refuse to be paid for one. Like that's not happening. If you're thinking that the next raise is gonna get you to be finally happy with life and your soul is gonna be content, if you think that, that there's nothing that you can buy underneath the sun or see as an account balance in your banking app that, that is gonna do anything other than infuse your life with goodness and satisfaction and joy and, and peace and purpose, please understand we were not created to chase dollars and cents. We were created to worship the one who owns everything. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't be paid fairly for the work we do or strive to provide for our families or, or pursue growth or business or anything else like that? No, I don't think that's what Solomon is saying at all. It's a recognition that there's no life in the money you gain if that's all that you're living for. If the gain and the increase of wealth is the reason that you get out of bed in the morning, it's a slippery slope. And it won't provide what your soul truly needs possible, as we saw in verse 17, to be filthy rich, but eat in darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger, because that's not our purpose. So what's the answer then? What's the answer to that? It's really what we see in the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6. So let's take a look there, starting in verse 18, and we'll read through most of chapter 6 here. It says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink, find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. 
Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is a vanity. It's a grievous evil. A man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it's not seen the sun or known anything, and it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over Yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the same, to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Look, there's a lot, and, and, and we're not gonna unpack all of it, here, but the biggest thing I want you to notice is what we saw back in verses 18 through 20, and then we see again in chapter 6, verse 9, which is this. Because riches don't satisfy, be content with the things that God has given you. Whether that is much, as many of us know and experience, living in such an affluent area, good paying jobs, opportunity that the Lord has given us. Be content with the things that God has given you, whether that's much or whether that's little, because what? It's all ultimately his. It's all ultimately his. What, what, what Solomon is saying here in, in, in 18 through 20, where he, he's saying what, what, what's good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil and, and to, to enjoy and accept the things that God has given you is this. He's saying, look, enjoy the food in front of you. Enjoy the drink in front of you and enjoy your family, enjoy your kids, enjoy your house, enjoy your hobbies, enjoy whatever wealth God has given you because otherwise you might fall into the trap of being so consumed with what you don't have, you forget to enjoy the things that you do have. Is that anyone else or is that just me? I mean, I'll be honest with you. I sometimes, more often than I'd like to admit, and discontent with life because I'm looking beyond what I have to what I don't. And thinking to myself, if I just had this, somehow life would be better. Better pay, better car, vacation home, these clothes, that toy. Solomon shows up saying, look, if you think that that's gonna satisfy, I'm the, I'm the guy who owns all the toys, all the cars, all the kingdom. I'm just telling you, there's no life there. I know you think there is, but as one speaking from the other side, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, if you can't be content with the things in front of you, you're never gonna find contentment with the things that you don't. You can't enjoy the things that God has given you now. How will you enjoy the things that he's given you if he increases it twice? It's a contentment issue. Your heart is not pleased with the gifts that God has given you. You need to address that first. Because as it says in chapter six, verse nine, better is the sight of the eyes, what you see, than to chase what is unseen, the appetite for more, the wandering of the appetite. 
because it's like trying to catch the wind. This parable that you see in, in chapter six here, it's, it's talking about a man, sounds very much like Solomon. God's given him wealth and possessions and honor and children. But what about him? Solomon says it's, it's, it's better to have never lived than to have everything and not be able to enjoy it. The rich and the poor all go to the same place and you can't take anything with you. So find contentment and joy in the good things God has given you today because tomorrow your days may come to an end. So how do we do that? Right? How do we do that? How do we, how do we celebrate and live inside contentment with what we have rather than chasing riches? I think there's Bible that speaks to this, right? First Thessalonians, give thanks in all things. All things. How do I give thanks to God in all things? Because you ultimately recognize in good and in bad, he's king of all. And so we, we learn and we train ourselves to understand that all of the days that we have under the sun, all the days that we have on this earth are ultimately his. And so whether good or bad befalls us, we can give thanks because we know that this isn't the final chapter. That doesn't mean that it's not hard. Doesn't mean that there aren't times where in addition to giving thanks, there are things you've got to do to resolve pain points and fix problems and, and work on things that are not okay. But give thanks. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first what? And what will be added to you? Jesus didn't say, look, all these other things are, are, are evil and bad and you should never desire them or have them or want them, but prioritize. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. These other things will be added to you. Because as you seek him over here, whether these things get added or not and in whatever capacity, your focus is not on them anyway. It's on him. Remember Paul, right? Philippians 3, what does he say? Homeboy had it all. He was respected, he was revered, he had pedigree, and he said, I count all of that stuff as garbage compared to knowing Christ. Does that mean that Paul didn't have needs? Does it mean that Paul didn't have desires? Does it mean that Paul didn't ultimately benefit from those things? Of course he did. He just categorized them appropriately. and said, look, if these things go away and all that I gain today is knowing Jesus more, man, that's a plus. I could lose 99% of my investment, and if I gain Jesus, even half of a percent, man, that's the best gain in the world. That was a day that I won. I wanna, I wanna live like that. I wanna be like that. I don't want to be discontent with the things I see. I wanna be so wrapped up in contentment, and we see this here, that, that God has occupied this, this person who's rightly prioritized things with joy in his heart. I wanna be so joy-filled and centered on Jesus that whatever happens down here, as difficult as it might be, and as much pain and as frustration as it might bring, or as much goodness as I might experience, ultimately what moves the needle for me is to be known by Jesus celebrate the day when I get to walk into his presence and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. There are people across the globe from us who can't fathom the salaries that we make who are looking forward to the same thing. 
and in his presence. Because nothing that we have goes with us. The playing field is level. So where is our contentment? Where is our hope? Now look, it's easy for me, as we're reading through this, as we're looking at passages like this, look, it's easy for me to get cynical because these hit at things which are really easy for me to do. It's easy for me to be religious without having a heart behind it. I've trained myself to do that over the years. It's easy for me to look outward for what I don't have and as a result, get a little bit fatalistic about life. But here's the good news this morning, right? Here's the good news in the midst of, of, of looking at passages that rub up against our human fleshly tendencies. We know the other side of the story, don't we? Church, don't you, believer? Don't you, Christian? You know the other side of the story. You have information that Solomon didn't, right? We have the privilege of knowing the answers to the questions he asked in verses 10 and 12. Look there. It says, whatever has, to, whatever has come to be has already been named, and what is known, and it is known what man is, and that is that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage, what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which pass like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Church, who knows what's good for us? Who knows what lies beyond the sun? Who redeems religion and work and money and justice and relationship and wisdom and all these things we've seen in Ecclesiastes that left to themselves are empty cisterns that hold no water? Christ! He infuses all of it with meaning. He knows what's good for us, the days that we live under the sun, and instead of the days being vain, he brings purpose and meaning and life and goodness and richness to every day that we have so that we don't wake up in the morning and go, today is vanity, that's vanity, toil is meaningless, work is meaningless, wisdom is meaningless, religion is meaningless. We wake up and we go, everything has meaning because we are known by Jesus. He infuses everything that we do with purpose and, and, and wisdom and, and meaning and goodness so that we wake up in the morning and we go, whatever befalls me today, King Jesus is on the throne and I can worship him. And that means today, good or bad is his. Praise God for that. The days may be long and they may be difficult, but they are laden with opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. Who can tell us what comes after us underneath the sun? The one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who's declared the beginning from the end and who has told us that there's a future glory that awaits those of us who are in Christ. You see, church, outside of, outside of Jesus, we're stuck playing this game, trying to find purpose and meaning in anything that is on this earth and finding over and over and over and over again that it is meaningless. But in Christ, the script is flipped. And we know that not only do we have our greatest treasure and the one to whom we are called and designed to worship. But we know that he brings meaning to all things. 
And that can help us, unlike the fool, unlike the one who loves money, to be like the laborer who gets up, works diligently, as though for the Lord and not for man, and sleeps soundly at night, resting and trusting in our Savior. May we do that more fully this week as we walk with Jesus. Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you that we are not stuck in the cycle that we see in Ecclesiastes. Father, I don't know, I don't know where we're all at this morning. I know where I'm at. My desire this morning for us as a people, including myself, is that I'll evaluate the things I'm trusting in, I'll evaluate the things that I'm content with. Consider whether this is just a religious song and dance or whether. I'm really leaning in and trusting you. I know there's going to be seasons for all of us where the lines on those are not clear. Holy Spirit, work in our lives this week to expose areas in our life where, where sin has taken a, a, a foothold and where discontentment has taken a foothold and help us to live out of the, the things that we talk about. Giving thanks in all things, seeking first your kingdom, your righteousness, considering things as rubbish compared to gaining Christ. Help us to trust and believe. There's no greater aim for our lives, for all the days that you give us, than to know Jesus and to make him known. We want that. We worship you now as people who understand with humility and reverence the goodness and the grace of our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.